You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. If you stop reading from the last chapter, which honestly would be a great place to stop, I mean, Joseph, right, the young Jewish or Hebrew boy thrown into the dungeons and then suddenly promoted by the Pharaoh as his number two from slave to prime minister sounds like a pretty amazing kind of story plot, right? It sounds like a great movie plot idea. And if it were a movie plot idea, I think that would have been a great ending because it serves as a great moral that if you faithfully do what is right, then you'll be exalted and you'll be honored in due time. Roll the credits, right? Period, the end. And we call clap our hands and say that was a great, wonderful ending. But this isn't some movie, is it? It's not some fairy tale. And in fact, I think you've all figured out by now that this story about Joseph isn't even about a story about Joseph. It's not even about Joseph. The Bible is never a story of just the characters. In fact, we read from 2 Timothy 3, 15, 17. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So not only does the Bible serve as a spiritual guide to train us to do what is right and that we might, so that we might be ready to do God's work, but the Bible in its brutal honesty reveals the depth of our sin and the plan of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. The Bible is to exalt Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Do you believe that? Can I hear an amen? So when we read the Bible, the challenge is to read in a way where you end up lowering yourself and exalting Christ. That when you read the scriptures, that you lower yourself and that you elevate Christ. When you read it, ask yourself, how can I learn from these characters? Yes, but more importantly, how does relating to these characters allow me to draw nearer to my king? Because I want more of Jesus. More than anything else, I want more of Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, I want more of Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, it's not just about Joseph here. The purpose of the story of this account is to reveal to us who God is, but also to reveal his sovereign control of all history. So the story of Joseph is really far from over because his promotion to number two in all of Egypt was really for a greater purpose. And how awesome is that, knowing that what's going on in your life right now? Okay, even if it's going well or not going well, that there's a greater purpose and where you're at is just where you're at for now, but things will change. So say to your neighbors, and this is the last one, there's more to come. There's more to come in your life. Are you happy about that? I'm excited. There's more to come. So I have a couple points to make. My first is this, God's plans don't fail. Say that together. God's plans don't fail. Now, have you ever planned for something only for it to completely fall apart? Yeah? Can I hear an amen to that? Right? You heard that little fun thing where they said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Right? You know, in grade school, elementary school, I think it starts usually around that early, the typical question that's asked of all students is, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
What do you want to be when you grow up? I've been asked that before, many times actually, and I would say things like doctor or basketball player or teppanyaki chef. Seriously, to me, those guys were legendary with their onion volcanoes and shrimp cutting skills. Well, guess what? I didn't become a doctor. I married one. I played basketball in school, and sadly, I have no large iron griddle to cook my food and chuck shrimp tails at my wife, right? No, I'm a pastor, and I never thought I'd be one, to be honest. Anyways, how many of you guys became what you want to be when you're younger? How many of you are firemen? How many of you are astronauts? How many of you are NFL football players or teppanyaki chefs? Our plans change all the time. I think when I was in college, my major, my first semester changed like a dozen times, right? Our plans change, we change, but God does not change. We change, our plans change, except for God's. His plans don't change. His plans don't fail. Can we say praise God for that? God's plans never fail. That is a good thing. Amen? So over the years, prior to these events, God, he's been doing something amazing. He's been revealing his plans to the people. Little by little, he told Abraham. Little by little, he told Isaac. Little by little, he then told Jacob what he was doing. And then about 20 years before this passage, God, he shows Joseph something of his plans in a dream. And you can all probably remember that back in chapter 37. Remember how Joseph, the youngest son, he had two dreams which both of them showed his father and all his brothers, older brothers, bowing down to him. How insulting could that have been? Insulting. If my younger brother, I got a younger brother, if my younger brother said that to me, I'd probably beat him up until he dreamed another dream. (laughs) I mean, the brothers were incensed. They said, you think we should bow to you? They were so angry that eventually they decided to kill him. But as a caravan to Egypt came by at the right time, they decided to sell him off as a slave. I mean, the audacity for Joseph, the runt of the litter, to tell the patriarch, Jacob, his father, and all his older brothers to bow down. That is simply ridiculous. But you know what? God, he had a plan in all that. He had a plan in all that. And so unbeknown to them, this chapter begins the string of events which ultimately works out God's foreordained purposes. You see, there was a famine that came, a famine that covered the entire region, including that promised land, Canaan, where Jacob's family was living. And so in the midst of that severe famine, word got out that, you know what? This nation, Egypt, had a lot of food, and they got a lot of food to sell. So in these opening verses, Jacob sends his sons, except his new favorite, Benjamin, And he sends all his other sons, except for Benjamin, off to Egypt to buy grain. In chapter 35, by the way, just a little recap, Rachel, she dies while giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph and Benjamin, Jacob's favorite sons, are from Rachel, his favorite wife. So back to the story. So the brothers go to Egypt, and there they come before this guy who was in charge, this man who was in charge of everything, someone they simply did not recognize. Verse 6 says, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Now what just happened right then and there? The dream that Joseph had decades ago just happened. God's plans don't fail. Joseph being persecuted by his own family, then thrown into the pit, sold and carted off to Egypt, then thrown into prison. 
we probably label that kind of a person, that kind of life as a failed life, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say, in a very worldly, materialistic, in a very worldly sense, that's a failed life. That person who had, who had experienced all those mishaps, all those issues, would be considered a failure. If you were a father and you had a daughter of marriage, maritable age, you probably wouldn't say, hey, marry that guy. This guy would be considered a failure. How could anything good come from a life lived like that? How can anyone possibly bounce back from all those scars, from all those issues? You know what? No matter how many mistakes you made, even up until today, if you are a child of God, if you pursue to walk in obedience, if you suffer for Christ, if you live for Christ, it doesn't matter how your life turns out, whether it was easy or whether it continues to be hard or whether you face trials or comfort, riches or poor, the one thing your life won't be is a failed life. If you are in Christ, one thing your life won't be, you may, be, you may have a poor life. You may experience a lot of anguish, but one thing your life won't be is a failed life because one thing you won't be is a failure. If you are in Christ, you cannot be a failure because to say that you are a failure is to say that our God is a failure. And that is not true. It is impossible to be a failure, to be a waste when you're living for Christ and his kingdom. When Jesus appeared, get this, they didn't want him as a leader either. So in a frenzy of hatred, they handed him over to the Roman government to be crucified. But on the third day, he rose again. A few days later, get this, Apostle Peter, he explains that instead of destroying Jesus, that they had actually played into God's hands to accomplish the salvation which Jesus came to restore, secure. God's plans will never fail. Satan thought he won when Jesus was crucified. You, you believe that? Satan thought he won. When Jesus crucified, Satan thought, thinks that he's won when you fail to obey God. He thinks he's won when you stumble in sin. He thinks he's won when the church splits. He thinks he's won when your marriage breaks apart. He thinks he's won when you fall into depression. He thinks he's won when you get fired from that job. He thinks he's won any time and every time a failure happens in your life. But that's when we say to him, yes, I may be weak. Yes, I may have failed, but God's will will never fail. I may fail, but God will never fail. I may stumble, but God's grace will hold me up. I may be broken, but God's love will restore me. Isn't that the truth? You may have thought that Christ died saying, but he died so I could live now. And now he sits at the right hand of God waiting for the day of judgment to come back and to vanquish sin once and for all and to chain you up, Satan, for all eternity. So no, I'm not a failure because I am God's child and my heavenly Father will never fail me. And I praise him for that because he is the one holding me up. Now, God, he wasn't just moving in the events of history for his glory, but he was also working, working very intimately, very personally into the, in the, in the lives of the sons of Jacob so that they too would be restored. Can you believe that? These wicked, awful, horrible guys that you and I will probably write off for the rest of our lives and say, I'm never going to give you another chance to ever come back, to ever again to my good favor. And yet God, he's saying, uh-uh, I want to do something. I want to restore these guys so that these guys, too, may receive my blessings. And that goes to my second point. Only God will awaken us 
Only God will awaken us. All right, so here's the thing. One of the most distinctive traits of humans is our conscience. What we have inside us is the kind of, kind of the moral umpire of sorts, <clears throat> which sits in judgment over us. You know, have you seen cartoons where typically the old angel would pop up on the right shoulder or so? And it would, it would kind of come to illustrate the deafening voice of condemnation, right? When, you, when, that, when that cartoon character is trying to do something, the angel will say, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop right there. That's not good. Why would you do that? Keep away from that, so on and so forth. So apparently there's something, by the way, in the Treasury Department. It is for those who have cheated on their taxes to make reparations. It's called, and I'm not kidding, the Conscience Fund. It's literally called the Conscience Fund. It seems that whenever you are bothered by cheating the government, that apparently a lot of people feel bothered by this, that annually they collect almost a quarter million dollars in received payments. But there's a problem. With a little training, with a little persistence, our wonderful, wonderful conscience can be deadened so that it seldom bothers us anymore, no matter what we do. This is kind of illustrated by the devil that all of a sudden pops up on the other side of the shoulder telling the angel to shut up. Now, I think we all know what I'm talking about. In fact, the Bible even says it too. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 says that the hypocritical liars are those whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Meaning this, that their consciences, their moral compass has been calloused, has been frayed, has been hardened. Titus 1.15 says, to the pure all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. And Jeremiah 6.15 makes it pretty clear what happens when you and I continue to live in sin. It says, are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So what does any of this have to do with this passage? This is exactly what has happened to Jacob's and to Joseph's brothers. Their consciences have all been deadened. Years earlier, they sold their teenage kid brother into slavery. Teenage kid brother into slavery. They pocketed the money, then they lied to their grieving father. But in verse 13, when they're telling the story to their unrecognizable brother, they're speaking of what they did and what happened to their brother as if, Nothing unusual happened. Joseph asked, tell me about your life. And he says, oh, this happened, this happened. But the youngest is with our father and one is no more. Did you hear that? The youngest is with our father, but one is no more. He's gone. He's disappeared. He's dead. He's just a distant memory. But there's no need to raise any details or questions about him because he's just no more. In fact, what these brothers did to Joseph was so quietly buried, never dealt with, never repented of, never discussed again, that in verse 22, get this, this is probably shocking, we see that Reuben, the eldest, he's the one who tried to save Joseph, that he didn't even know what happened to Joseph. He thought Joseph was sold or killed. He thought Joseph was killed. Remember, Reuben convinced the brothers, oh, don't kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit 
so that, we're, so that we don't bloody our hands. But what was his original idea? His original idea says scripture that he was going to go back later secretly, pick up Joseph, and bring him back to his father to restore him. But Reuben had no idea. So what we have here is a group of brothers, grown men with hardened hearts and consciences that are as hard as a rock. So, okay, what we have here is that God was trying to do something right now. Let me ask you this. How is your conscience? Have you been toiling in sin? Have you been immersed in sin so much that things that you once hated, things that were once so appalling, things that you, were so, that things that you would have been so easily to say, black and white, that is wrong, that is biblical, and that is not, that is truth, and that is false. But now today, right now, in your current situation and in your life, it has no longer, no longer has the same effect. That's what the brothers, that's how they were. They were so deadened. Their conscience, they didn't care anymore. But God, he was determined to bring them back because only God can awaken them. And so God, he used Joseph to be an instrument of God's grace. Let me ask you this for a quick second here. Who, I should say, how is God trying to bring you back right now? In what ways? Is, is, he bringing some, is someone in your life right now who's shouting at you but is simply being a nuisance? How is God bringing you back right now? What, is, what are his red flags that he's waving frantically to get your attention to say, come back, come back? So what happened? Joseph, who clearly remembers his dreams from years before, recognizes that it's now coming true. So he devises a plan, a plan to deal with his corrupt, dysfunctional family in order that God's purposes might be served. Now the way Joseph disciplines his brothers and punishes his brothers and tests his brothers brilliantly shows the tools and way God actually uses to shape us and awaken our dead consciences. So I want to have, I have, a, I have, some, I have a couple uh, sub-points here. First is this. God, he uses our desperate need of want to awaken us. Our desperate need of want to awaken us. You know, when they were back in Canaan, they were oblivious to the fact that they had these dead consciences. They didn't really care. But what happened? Hunger struck. And hunger is a powerful motivator. Famine swept across the region and something had to be done. So they heard that there was food in Egypt, but for some reason they didn't go down immediately to go buy it. Instead, it was their dad, Jacob, who finally spoke up and said, why are you guys just twiddling your thumbs and looking at each other? Go get it. Now, why they didn't go to Egypt, we're not sure. <clears throat> we're not sure. Maybe it was the guilt of sending their youngest brother down there. Maybe it was the fact that Egypt was considered a pretty hostile place, and so the prospect of going there for any reason would be frightening. But either way, they were hungry, and there was a huge need. In Amos chapter 4, God says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. Meaning, God, get this, God will oftentimes use our desperate need of want to bring us back to him. What are you desperately in need of today? Whatever it is, it is not that. It is God. It is more of God that we need. I mean, wasn't that the case for the prodigal son? When he, was, when he had plenty, when he had all the money in the world, he was fine. He was fine being away from his father. But when he was broke, when he was hungry, when he was alone, his heart began to turn towards home. Look, 
Maybe the financial pressures or loneliness or hunger of other things is the pinch that God is giving you to turn back to him. What is that pinch in your life? What is that pinch? When you're desperate, don't wave it off as saying, you know what, this is just some lousy circumstance I'm in. This is just a difficult season in my life that I'm in. No, no, no. God's sovereignty is using your situation of want to bring you back to the fullness of himself. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Secondly, harsh treatment can awaken you also. Harsh treatment. Could you imagine standing before the second most powerful man of that time and being treated in such a way where you could do nothing about it? Completely helpless. They were interrogated, these brothers. They were falsely accused of spying, and they were thrown into prison. It seems vindictive, but the reason was, was to bring was to place upon these brothers a sense of self-convicting deja vu. Now remember, the brothers accused Joseph of spying on them for his father. Do you remember that? When Joseph came to check on the brothers, they accused him of spying on them for his father, but now Joseph accuses them of being spies. When Joseph was accused years before, he said, no, 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 I'm only here for the sake of family's welfare. I'm not doing anything wrong. And so when the brothers were accused by Joseph, they said, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And finally, in spite of Joseph protesting and saying, stop, don't do this, they threw him into a pit. And now in spite of their protesting, Joseph throws them in jail. Joseph intended to startle them, startle them with a sense of deja vu to bring about self-conviction. It's like this, hear me out. Do you remember when prophet Nathan told David about the man who took that one sheep from that poor man, or the, uh, that one sheep from the poor man while he himself had a whole flock? Do you remember that? David was outraged. And Nathan finally revealed that this was King David that did this to illustrate that David had done to Uriah by taking his one wife. Now here's the thing. We've all been treated unfairly in our lives. Maybe you've all had some really mean boss or some uncaring employer. Maybe we've all been hit with injustices in some shape or form. I'll be honest with you, personally, growing up, I've had so many racially driven encounters where I've been called by every name. In the book, I have been literally spat upon I have literally been punched in the face and pushed more times than I can recall. And it creates such pain in my life. And while it may be tempting to play the victim card and say, you know what? These, those are the heathens. Those are the, the savages who did this to me. The harsh treatment growing up that I encountered only made me realize the power of anger, the power of sin, the power of all that is, but most importantly, the realization that the power of sin and anger was something I had against God. It wasn't just about the attackers. It was the attack, it was the pain I had against God. If you're facing harsh treatment today, and maybe you're not, and I pray that you're not, I'm not telling you to be a doorman, just allow it to happen. But let me say this, before you take any action, take notice that it is probably God trying to refine you, even in that pain. Even in that harsh treatment, God is not absent. Even in the injustices that you're facing, 
the miscommunication, the, the, the gossip, the slander, all that malice that's being thrown upon you. It is not in vain. God is trying to use that to refine you. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Harsh treatment is harsh, yes, but it is also a discipline, a tool that God uses to make you more like his son. And God, he wants to use that to awaken you so that you would draw near to him. Finally, the third thing God used through Joseph to awaken the brothers was through Joseph's undeserved kindness. In other words, grace and mercy. So from verses 18 19, Joseph, he changes the plan a bit. He says, you know, I'm willing to let you all go, but I'm going to hold on to one of the brothers until you bring back your younger brother, Benjamin. And the reason why he did that is because he said, I want to test you all to see if you're spies or not. If you bring him back, then I'll say you're not a spy. Now, one commentary says, why did he do that? It's because he knew his family in Canaan needed food. And to hold them back for another day or a week or whatever would put his entire people in jeopardy. In other words, he didn't want his family to starve. So as the brothers go off with the grain, Joseph had to put, Joseph put money back in their bags. And maybe he knew that they didn't have enough money to make another trip, but there is no evidence to support that Joseph was doing anything malicious or manipulative or treacherous. Not taking the payment for the grains is really simply this, an act of grace. But when the brothers stopped and found the money, what happened? They were terrified. They were terrified. Why? Because they had gone so far away from God for so long that they didn't understand what forgiveness looked like. They interpreted Joseph's kindness as a threat. You see, God was doing something gracious by returning their money. But because they weren't in a right relationship with him, this act of grace was feared. This act of goodness was misinterpreted as a threat. And so they were trembling. But I come to an end with this. Here is the encouraging sign in all this in verse 28. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Get this. From the chapters before, for the first time, these brothers finally recognize that God is a player in their lives. That God is doing something. That God is present with them. Because there's no, they're no longer blaming each other. They're no longer blaming Joseph. They're no longer blaming their situation. No, they're figuring out finally at this point that maybe God is doing something in our lives. That maybe God's hand is in all this. Look, God is doing the same thing today in us too. He creates a deep want in our lives and there's oftentimes harsh treatment and you'll face injustices in your life too. But there's also a lot of undeserved kindness and these are all tools used on us and he uses them to awaken us so that we will do one thing that we will come back and re recognize that his kindness leads to repentance you see god he says this i want you back so much so much i'm willing to use even the most difficult situations of your life to bring you back when our conscience awakens simply it's painful because why? We suddenly see ourselves for what we are. Suddenly we find the weight of our sins is overwhelming. And suddenly we find ourselves wrestling with guilt and despair. But God, he's got an answer for that too. Jesus died 
and he made atonement for our sins. He removed the burden of guilt in our lives. These things will happen in our lives. God will awaken our conscience so that we might repent, believe in him, and have life. And God, he wants that from us today through the trials of your life and through the tribulations, from all the times that you have faced injustice, for all the times that you have been hurt, you can either run from God or run to God. You can either fight the church or embrace the bride of Christ. You can either find freedom and repentance or you can continue to put up that wall that will only weigh you down and separate you from his love. How is God awakening you today? That is the question that we need to think about. Don't think that your life is it and that this is content and that you're fine with where you're spiritually at. Don't think that just because you have read the Bible through and through that you are fine and content. Don't think that just because you come to early morning prayer service that your spiritual life is fine. Don't think that just because you don't argue and fight and bicker with your wife or your husband that you are fine. God is saying, I want more of you, not just 80%, not just 99%. I want every bit of who you are. Just like our brother Kwaku said, a greater priority. The greatest priority. I want all of you. And God right now is using this passage to say, I am trying to wake you up. What is it? What is that pinch? Maybe it's a desire for something, a deep hunger or lacking of something. Maybe it is... Maybe it is un- injustice, whatever it is. But God in his grace, he wants to bring you back. Do not be content with where you're at right now. You get that? Let's pray. Let's take a moment and pray. This is just between you and the Lord, as we all know. What are you receiving from the Spirit of God right now? What is that burning in your heart that the Lord has placed? How is he waving his arms to get your attention? What is that pinch? It's not about because I'm struggling, I need to rise above this and do my best and overcome these struggles. The point of this message was to make us aware that all these struggles in our lives, from the big things, from the horrific, great, troubling things, to even the smallest mundane things, are all used by God in His sovereign control to say, come to me. Abandon all things and come to me. I want more of you. That the God of the universe would say that to you, to me, I want more of you. That he is not some distant God. He is personal. How long has it been for some of us here who have experienced the intimacy of his love? Or has your hearts, your consciences become so callous over the years? That church that scripture reading, that anything that has to do with your faith in Christ has become so just routine and so superficial and so just so shallow. If that's you today, 
God wants to wreck that. Don't settle for that kind of life because that's no life at all. In God's infinite love, He would not allow those horrible brothers of Joseph to remain in their sins and callousness. Don't you see the love that God has for you? Do you hear His voice calling out to you today? Do you see the nonverbal cues in which God is saying, Come to me. There is a hunger inside you. Come to me. Let's take a moment and pray. And really just bank on his kindness. Because in that, we need to come before him in repentance. Trust that he will extend to us that amazing grace of his. Okay, let's pray.